Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Injernil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm having a great day. Thank you. Great to speak to you again, Intranel. Dave, it's always a pleasure. I'm so glad to have you on the show. You know, on, on this program, we really like to talk to uh, entrepreneurs with diverse backgrounds and understand their journey, how they got to uh, their first venture and how they've been successful uh, venture after venture. And I think yours is an incredible story. You've been an entrepreneur many times over. I think you're on the fourth venture now that you've uh, founded and co-created, but you've been part of eight other ventures, I think. Um, So I'd love to sort of start by understanding your life history, as it were. How how did you start out? Um, I know you did some work in large corporations, but eventually you got the entrepreneurial bug. And eventually, you started building impact companies. Tell us a little bit about that uh, story. Well, I was fortunate to grow up in a family that valued education. Uh, Mom and dad did not have a lot of formal education beyond uh, high school, but they were very bright. And they knew that, uh, I think intuitively, they just knew that education was a means to improve your uh, lot in life. And so uh, we were given not only the opportunity to get education, my, uh, my six siblings and I, but we were given a lot of opportunities to try things and get involved and be active. Um, I was, as a young man, we used to scour the alleys for parts from bicycles and put new bicycles together from parts of, that were otherwise would have been thrown out. Um, I remember one of my greatest Christmas gifts I ever got was this plastic see-through engine you could build. And you could build it and see the pistons go up and down. So I've always enjoyed building things. When I look at my earliest years, and when you fast forward into my career, I spent 11 years in major college basketball uh, in a very intense uh, environment where we were competing for national championships at Indiana University. And my my mentor, Coach Bob Knight, uh, I, I parlayed that into 10 years, as you said, with uh, what, what is now GlaxoSmithKline. I started out in the old Smith, Klein and French days, and I think I was in that in its heyday where knowledge and science were critical uh, to your success in uh, the marketing of pharmaceutical products. Um, And then towards the end of that time, I got my MBA at the University of Southern California in entrepreneurship. I guess that entrepreneurship must have been an indicator, everybody wanted that I would be leaving GSK at some point. My general manager, Norm, certainly saw that coming. But he provided me a lot of opportunities to create new things and new programs, even at GSK. Uh, Norm was a phenomenal general manager to work for. So I think it's always been that I have always had this instinct to want to build things and create things. I, even when I was in the seventh to eighth grade, my grandfather was building a house for one of my uh, uh, aunts and, and her family. And I got to help build the house during the summer. And so you, it's, a, it's just a great environment where people encourage you to get involved and at the earliest ages and as you continue in life to be able to build things. And I was, I've also spent time in two incubators, actually working with three. And it was a great time to be able to help companies within those incubators grow. So it was now, I think it was just a natural progression to build the comfort and the confidence that it takes 
entrepreneur, and I eventually did that. You mentioned Bob Knight, um, and I also understand that when you were doing your MBA, you were taught by Peter Drucker. Now, these are, um, you know, giants of their spheres, right? So uh, what did you learn from being with these people? How did that sort of set you up for leadership and, and business success? You know, the experience with Coach Knight was phenomenal. Uh, he is a tremendous delegator. But as, uh, as he uniquely does, when he delegates, he also expects you to take that responsibility very seriously. Um, you know, I learned four basic tenets of management from Bob Knight, when I, and I was 20 years old when I became uh, one of the co-senior managers for uh, his program. And I, we managed a team of 13 guys that managed everything off the court. But I learned about uh, the importance of setting expectations, letting people know how their uh, performance was going to be measured, uh, providing the adequate resources to get the job done, and then giving timely and clear feedback to people. I mean, if you can do those four things in any business, you're going to have a pretty good shot at being successful to some degree. So I was able to take that responsibility that Coach gave me, and I was able to learn from it. And when you're competing at the level we were at that time, literally every year trying to striving for a national championship, and I was working for one of the brightest people I've ever met. Coach, is, his intellect is incredible, um, and yet he's demanding. And it was a fun environment because, it, I can tell you, it was never boring. Um, and it was always fun for me. So that was fabulous. Uh, you know, at, when I completed my MBA at USC, um, SmithKline was still willing to pay tuition at that time if you would take classes that pertain to your job. So I went out to the Claremont Graduate Institute, and I took a course from Dr. Drucker, who is, as you know, coined the terms knowledge worker and knowledge economy. And that, in fact, was what the title of the course was about. And it was tremendous to sit and see this man already in his early 90s talk about how the modern economy. And what I got out of that, the thing that I remember most that he talked about, was that he believed, at least at that time, that as a knowledge worker, you are working in about a seven-year sprint. It's almost like agile software development. If you apply that concept to your life and your career, that every seven years, you needed to regenerate your knowledge because as your knowledge uh, uh, is used, it becomes overtaken by new things in a knowledge economy. And we certainly have seen that in so many industries. And I think that experience worked uh, speaking and hearing from Dr. Drucker for about 15, 16 straight weeks, it really gave me an appreciation for how I had to be able to reinvent myself every seven years to stay highly relevant in the market. And that is exactly what you seem to have done, actually. So maybe we fast forward now to your first entrepreneurial venture and then how each venture has built on the success, the skills that you developed, the network that you developed of the previous one. Because I think you know, this sort of uh, continuous building, if I can call it that, not just continuous improvement, but continuous building layer upon layer of capability, network, and know-how seems to be, you know, what you're talking about in terms of uh, sharpening the saw and keeping fresh. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, the first venture that I formed was co-founded with my good friend and business partner, George Tierney. We had a uh, We had an agency called Quantum was to work with emerging companies and help them refine their business strategy, prepare them to go out to raise money, and then build their initial brand and build a communications platform for them to go forward. 
and we had good success at it. Um, we had uh, we did that for about eight years. But it's one of those businesses that if you don't scale at the right time, if the right opportunities aren't there, you're going to remain a small boutique agency. And we had we had visions of something better because we had done really great work for a lot of good clients. So we said, let's look for another big thing that we could apply our talents the way we did for clients. I was volunteering at USC for one of my professors of entrepreneurship on a Sunday morning, and I saw a presentation by a physician uh, about telemedicine in a children's hospital. And that was the founding, that led to the founding of the second company I was involved in, SnapMD. And with SnapMD, we saw this opportunity uh, for telemedicine to be used by the incumbents in healthcare. While there were a lot of startups doing direct services as a service provider, we felt that there was a market for a private label platform in telemedicine. And so we took those skills we had from Quantum Method, applied them directly to our own company, and we did good work. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, at the same time, we also had created a company called Intravera. Uh, a former client came back to us and said that he had some ideas around a uh, natural remedy for bruises uh, for uh, patients that commonly bruised. And so we created a company called Intravera and we launched a series of products, one of them called BruiseMD, and we got that into some level of distribution. But those are hard businesses to gain shelf space. And so we ended up selling uh, the rights to that product and the brand to a third party. And then as we uh, were going through uh, with SnapMD, that eventually led to the company I'm working on right now, FiberX, which is an exciting opportunity in, uh, in recycling and agriculture. And I think that the, uh, the opportunity here is very large and it has a lot of derivative uh, businesses that could come from it. And that's why it's exciting to me right now. Let's talk a little bit about SnapMD because I think that uh, it truly is a, an impact business because of the, 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 the health impact, the social impact, it has the possibility to create increasing the access to healthcare. But I, I really wanted to talk about your business model because as you pointed out, there are, there are many telemedicine platforms that try to disintermediate the doctor, disintermediate the healthcare system in a way by you know, allowing you to generate a consult with a pool of doctors out there that you have potentially no relationship with as a patient. Now, you may be able to get some immediate support and it has some value, but what your model was was actually to try to enable the you, you, a, person, a patient's own physician and healthcare provider and to enable the health system. So I'm intrigued to, to hear how you architected that business model and how it worked out. Well, you know, the, the original business model, because of uh, Dr. Morse, who had the idea I saw at USC, the original model that we were going to pursue was to build a national network of the top uh, pediatric medical centers in the country. We felt that there was, and there continues to be even still today, many children with advanced diseases or lifetime diseases do not have access to the best of medical care in America. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if every child in America had access to the incredible expertise at a children's hospital? It was very hard. The network effect was going to take too long to build that business, so we pivoted. And as we spoke to a series of CEOs, we saw the opportunity uh, because every CEO, the first question they asked was, 
I understand what you're trying to do for us through telemedicine, but whose brand is going to be in front of my patient? So it, wasn't, it didn't take very long to figure out that there was an opportunity for a private label uh, telemedicine business. And then as we examined the market, we saw that building that application to handle many different types of medicine would have greater utility. And so what we eventually built was a health system uh, that was digital. And uh, the exciting thing in Janelle that made it an impact business was that we had over 45 different clinical use cases being uh, offered on our platform. And that was exciting because, and then as COVID hit, we saw a massive spike in the number of um, uh, patients that were being seen on the platform and the number of private riders using it. But the fact that we had patients with depression and other uh, mental illnesses and behavioral conditions treated on the platform. We had patients with chronic diseases like heart failure and stroke. Uh, we had people getting every form of counseling for different medical conditions and uh, the role of diabetic educators in managing uh, patients with diabetes. Um, that was really fun to me because we knew every day we were making an impact. In fact, I would continually tell our staff while our business definition is we're an enterprise software company, our mission was really to provide greater access and greater convenience for patients to get the care they need from their provider of choice at the time they need it. And having had a number of family members have advanced medical conditions, maintaining that trusted relationship between a patient and provider and having that continuity of care there's a role for standalone telemedicine companies in the market. That's been proven for sure. But when you get a diagnosis of congestive heart failure, type 2 diabetes, emphysema or COPD, no longer is single episodic care adequate for you. You need that continuity of care. And it, I told our staff, if you can't get excited coming to work to help enable that, you're probably at the wrong place and let us find you a new opportunity somewhere else. And it was about that simple. Yeah. No, and I think the the customer base that you built up was incredibly impressive. I don't know how much of that you can share, but could you give us a, a sense of uh, how many uh, patients, how many health physician hospitals and physicians it encompassed? Yeah, we had. Um, I have to be a little bit cautious because of my separation agreement, as you know, with these things. But uh, what we publicly put out was that we were seeing upwards of fifty thousand patients being uh, administered care on our platform, as well as other follow-on care they were receiving. And we had in the range of 7,500 doctors on the platform uh, at the time that I was still with the company. So um, it, it was the diversity of the care that was being offered. We even had, uh, at the time of COVID, we had four companies in health systems that we supported with COVID care. And they were being able, in one case, they were a, a very novel use of the technology they had patients in a university dorm that was closed for classes at that time because of COVID. And it was basically a step-down unit where patients were being monitored um, and before they were released to go home to ensure that they, were, uh, that they were fully stable. And we took a lot of pride in helping them troubleshoot the best way to roll those programs out. It was done very fast, but it was very good work and very important to help uh, combat uh, the COVID crisis. So we felt very good about what we were doing with SnapMD in that way. Yeah, and I can see how, again, with these seven-year sprints, you're building one experience after the another. another. So the healthcare experience at Glaxo, the, uh, the digital media experience at your first startup, 
kind of combining the two into this software as a service platform and telemedicine for health systems. And then now, tell us about FiberX. How does that fit in? To the, yeah, to the it, would, it would naturally look like a hard left turn, right? Uh, but actually, back in 2006, 2007, when we had our agency quantum method, uh, we were engaged by a group of individuals who were forming a company to do some of what uh, FiberX is planning to do. Uh, so they were working with the University of Wisconsin and the U.S. Forest Service Lab. And this idea of churning agricultural waste products into higher value goods has been studied academically for well over 20 years now. But all the market forces weren't right for it. Um, there are a number of factors that didn't make it highly feasible, literally back in 2006 and 2007. But I believe that those uh, market conditions have changed. Some of the technology that's used in farming has made the, the case uh, more solid. Um, and so when I was leaving SnapMD, I was looking for another big opportunity, an impact opportunity, as we've been discussing. And I happen to be from a town in northern Indiana, just outside of Chicago, called Hammond. This is Hammond, East Chicago, and Gary, Indiana, are on one of the heaviest industrial pieces of land in the world. Steel mills, foundries, refineries, and the, and the like. And yet that area is a ghost of what it was when I was a young man. Um, it is The population is probably 40% of what it was uh, because of lack of jobs. And so I get home pretty frequently. And yet Indiana at the same time is the number five agriculture state in America. It is the number five state in America growing coin, corn. It is also a big producer of soybeans. And so when I was looking for another big opportunity, I looked at my, the research we had done with our prior client in this area and the market still had not evolved. And yet the opportunities were there. And did a lot of research in the last six months. And I'm at the point where the formation of the company is, is, is near term. Uh, we've done a massive, I have done, led a very significant feasibility study, which is probably the greatest thing I learned in my MBA, is how to assess ideas and turn them into uh, reasonable and commercially viable concepts and uh, have rounded out what that concept is now gonna look like. Uh, turn out of, uh, seeing what we had done in the past with the client, trying some of this uh, and, re and re uh, kind of restarting that. But really this opportunity to help my hometown area in Northern Indiana uh, and at the same time help the farmers of Indiana create a co what they would call a co-product. In addition to corn, we are gonna take the stover off the field. Stover is the corn stalk, the leaves of the stalk, the corn husk and the cob because these phenomenal machines that John Deere and other make, corn off the cob right on the field, we're gonna take all of those residue, organic residues that are considered waste products and turn them into a new co-product, which will produce a sustainable source of income for the farmer. And we think that's good for the farmers of Indiana, and we will create new, mini mills of sort to produce jobs in mid-sized cities and in, in, in counties in Indiana, uh, and it'll be headquartered in my hometown, which is fun to think about. If you're enjoying this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to visit us on the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes and leave a rating and review. Your feedback is essential to help us bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the show.
The video version of the show can be found on YouTube by searching under Impact Unicorns. Please like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows. Well, one of the uh, things that I love about this particular project is the, the local developmental impact. So you're trying to reverse uh, decades of uh, economic uh, you know, decay and downsizing because uh, agriculture and industry kind of downsized and you know these places lost population, lost tax revenue, and in a way you know diminished in their ability to rejuvenate themselves. So they need uh, a, a new economic stimulus. And funnily enough, what you're going to use as part of that stimulus is what was previously considered waste. So Stover is either just, as I understand it, just used to cover uh, cropland um, to prevent soil erosion um, and really doesn't have that much economic value. But what you're talking about is taking some of the excess and converting it into much more valuable um, natural materials for uh, construction and other applications. Um, and it, on top of that, of course, uh, you, you're um, you know, recycling uh, waste, which if it decayed, might have a greenhouse gas emitting effect. So there's a lot of positive impacts here. Um, you know, it, that, you know, Andrew, no, it's, it's interesting to, to sit and meet with a group of farmers. Number one, you realize just how sophisticated they are. You know, these aren't people that just ride a tractor, you know, at the start and the end of a season and grow a bunch of stuff. These are very sophisticated, very intelligent people. They are well attuned to the concept of net zero carbon farming. They are understanding uh, their customers' needs for their uh, sustainability gradings uh, and meeting their uh, needs. And uh, when you go through and you talk to the farmer, they see both the environmental opportunity here and the impact that will have. They see, of course, the economic impact for them and their farm operations uh, to keep them viable and sustainable. And yet they see the societal impact on, on carbon uh, in the environment. In uh, talking with them, uh, they are anxious to uh, be a part of the project uh, and are willing to work with us to do some of the R&D to find the most efficient means to do this so that we don't actually burn more carbon to do it. Uh, and so we're gonna be partnering with them uh, and being able to produce revenue for them and at the same time have them help improve the processes by which we do this. You know, our first line of product will be an OSB type board, an oriented strand board. That's a $15 billion market. And so these are very big markets. This, these products are used for everything from sheathing for flooring, the sheathing on walls in a new home, the sheathing for the roof. They're used as components in I-beams. They're used in furniture. Uh, they're used in cabinetry. They're used in recreational vehicles. And by the way, my home state of Indiana leads the U.S. in all three of those markets. So it's kind of a unique opportunity where we're going to take this biological waste product, turn it in, using it with some combinations of clean resins, uh, some of which are going to come out of Purdue University's chemical engineering department, but turn them into mass production, high value products and we have three major industries directly in Indiana that lead, the, lead those industries in the United States that we hope to build a customer base with, among others. And in some ways, this could be the first of many use cases or applications, because maybe you can walk us through the whole cycle here. So you're growing the corn, and there's this corn stover byproduct. Now, currently, I think a lot of it's just used sort of 
lay on top of the land to prevent soil erosion and gets you know composted back into the soil. But, yeah, and you know, uh, there's there's actually three uses of stover today. Mm -hmm. One is a portion it remains on the farm, either depending on the, 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 the agriculture strategy of the farmer, there's both till and no-till farming today in, in deployment. If it, sometimes the stover just stays, they let it naturally decay, and then they go to plant the next year. Other farmers till it in to, as you said, improve the nutrient uh, uh, quality of the soil as well as guard against soil erosion. Sometimes though, they will collect the stover and use it, and they add other components to it to make uh, a feed for cattle and other purposes. And then they also use it uh, for bedding within certain uh, areas with different farm animals. Uh, but none of those, to your earlier comment, are high values of what that material could be used for. And that's what we propose to do. And is it true that if you start going to more regenerative farming methods using less tillage, you won't need as much of that stover to preserve the quality of the soil? You'll actually exactly. have more, more of it available for these higher value uses, therefore unlocking more economic potential in the places where they're originating. Yeah, it's a combination of that. And then also the, geo, the uh, agricultural ecosystem where you are farming. So Indiana is very fortunate and it's, uh, it's similar to about five or six other states where the soil quality, the, um, the precipitation in the area, and then the yields off these farms are tremendous in Indiana. For instance, the corn yield uh, this year, the reports are it may be as high as 190 bushels per acre, where literally a dozen years ago, it was closer to 100. And there is a ratio of about one to one corn to corn stover production. So the higher the yield of corn, the higher amount of stover that is produced. So we're gonna be able to go in and in many cases for the farmers help solve a problem in some cases, they actually have too much stover, uh, even if they did want to just till it in or leave it in the field. So what we're going to be able to help them do is we will only need to take about 20 to 25% of the stover off the field. The remainder can remain there for their primary infield purposes. And then we're going to take and process this material and maximize its value. And we actually have now identified a minimum of three primary businesses out of our uh, stover operations itself. Number one, we will take the leaves and the husks to be used to make oriented strand board. Number two, working with Purdue University as a partner, uh, we are gonna create out of the lignin that is naturally found in stover, we are gonna create a, uh, a biologically safe glue, glue or adhesive to be used in making the uh, oriented strand board. And then third, we are still gonna have agricultural waste products such as some of the corn stalks that we bring into the uh, bale of Stover. Well, we're gonna be able to chop those things up. And for instance, one of the products could be pellets for ethanol production or briquettes that could be used uh, as a replacement for coal in coal burning power plants. New Indranil is maximized. There's this tremendous agricultural product, co-product sitting in the field we're gonna pay the farmer a fair rate for it. We're gonna extract it off the farm uh, appropriately and safely to maintain the health of their farms. But we are then gonna create two to three initial direct products out of this. And then you can start to think about the derivatives of the products that can come from this. We can make uh, shipping pallets. We can make manufactured and engineered flooring. We can make eye joists and eye beams out of this. 
So you start to think about all the products that use wood. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, last week I was in Elkhart, Indiana and toured two RV plants. There's a tremendous amount of wood in recreational vehicles, uh, as well as in the major uh, cabinetry and furniture manufacturing operations in Indiana. And we're going to try to convince them that a greener product in the home is better for their customer and will help them with their sustainability ratings as well. Well, that's a phenomenal strategy. And you mentioned that just one of those segments was a $15 billion you know, business per year. So um, this is looking... Justin, to, to give you another data point, <laughs> just in Indiana, the uh, furniture and cabinetry markets combined is over a $3.5 billion industry. Mm. The, uh, it's harder to put a number because many of the companies are private in the recreational vehicle market. But it, the, Elk, the greater Elkhart, Indiana, which is a town in north central Indiana, 80% of the RVs in the world are manufactured there. So these are very big industries right in our home state, but there's a lot of construction going on and trusses and I-beams and things like that are a tremendous opportunity. And we're also going to look at a variety of other uses in agriculture because we have such a rich agriculture market, such as Indiana is one of the top four states in the production of watermelons and cantaloupe. Well, those are heavy, uh, heavy uh, 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 agricultural products to move, and we can create products to help them do that safer and better. And is there any technology that uh, you're applying here, whether it's on the agricultural side to, you know, help improve agricultural methods to free up the stover for, for the application or the processing of the stover itself into different, um, you know, products? I can't go into detail about some of the ideas we have because we're going to consider those proprietary, but we have certainly recognized uh, how to part by meeting with a large group of farmers now and the implement companies themselves uh, that make the machinery. Number one, they have continually been improving their, uh, their machinery to do these types of things. Uh, uh, number two, uh, there are techniques and settings that you can put on the combines themselves of how the stover is processed while it's being, uh, while the corn is being uh, harvested. Uh, there are techniques and better equipment now, for instance, one that's publicly available. Um, there are trailers to carry up to 20 bales of stover at 12 to 1500 a piece. And literally you push those bales on with a lift. And when they get to the location to unload, you pull one bar and all 20 bales fall very easily and swiftly off the device that allows the truck, the tractor to pull that thing through. So you have high throughput. So a lot of it's a novel use of existing technologies. Um, we are also working, as I said, with the chemical engineering department at Purdue University. There is a world a renowned scientist in adhesives and binders. And uh, with the work that uh, he has done, we are going to venture and uh, join a uh, join into uh, a program to create uh, another cleaner uh, adhesive. So, for instance, there are soy flour based adhesives today, but you actually have to take the food product that you're growing to turn into a resin. We again are going to take a waste product from agriculture, access the lignin that is naturally in that material, and from the lignin make a binder that we can use in the manufacturing of our products. So there's, there is tremendous opportunity. And then, of course, Indranel, besides the technology, there is the need for sustainability and the, the awareness of the need for that across not only Indiana and the U.S., but the world. 
that we have to be better stewards of our environment. And so that environment that we are, are starting this company in is much more conducive to success because the customers, our customers and the farmers' customers are looking for sustainability as part of their business models now. So all of those things combined give us a lot of uh, tailwinds behind the business opportunity. And that's fantastic. And again, I just reiterate, it's, it's, it's great to hear these stories where so much of the activity is happening locally. So you're engaging the local universities, local scientists, the local talent, the local farmers. Um, you're developing technology, creating a lot of higher value products and jobs. So it's a tremendous, you know, uh, all around impact uh, uh, venture. So let me, let me address that a little further, if I may, Andrew So in addition to our partnership, so we're built with what I'm doing, part of the building of this, because this is a big initiative, right? We want to we want to prove this in the state of Indiana and then go beyond. Uh, but we've been, we're building a coalition. So uh, we are tapping the resources of Purdue University's main campus in West Lafayette. Purdue Northwest, which has a campus in my hometown, has a commercialization center and, and, and a uh, NIST MEP program to help companies refine their manufacturing processes. Uh, we are going to be partnering with some academic uh, institutions in Southern Indiana and with the local government and economic development officers there uh, because we've identified our first probable location to do this. And then what's really fun is we've got the attention of the Indiana Corn Growers Association, the State Department of Agriculture and its Economic Development Department, the Economic Development Corporation for the state, and then a group called Agrinovus, uh, which is a nonprofit that looks for new business opportunities for agriculture for Indiana's farmers. So we feel really great about partnering with the academic institutions, uh, Purdue as one of the top engineering and ag schools in the country, if not the world, has been a phenomenal partner so far. But we're also partnering, uh, I've met with the local government entities up in Northwest Indiana where we'll put our, our headquarters and our R&D and prototyping facility. But we've already talked about putting either a, a pallet manufacturing plant or a, uh, a engineered flooring plant in that area because you can't start 50 small businesses and have a huge impact. It will have a, certainly an important impact on those, those, those persons that start those businesses and the people they serve, but we need a bigger economic driver. And I think FiberX can be part of the solution for Northwest Indiana. And I take great responsibility and pride in hopefully being a part of that. And actually I would say that that is unicorn thinking right there. You know, I like to quote, it's not 50 small companies, that's great, but you've got to create effectively the mega platform that's right. going to drive prosperity uh, across the state, the country and, and the industry. Um, where are you with uh, with funding on this? Because uh, I know you, this is still a relatively early stage, but you're moving super quickly. Uh, how's that going? So uh, it, we're doing what I've learned from my prior ventures, um, parallel paths to funding. So one is there is significant funding available. I shouldn't say significant, a, a good amount of funding available from state and federal sources that we are working and applying for. So there are grant programs looking to fund uh, agronomics and um, ecological recycling projects. Uh, and so there are a number of those the Purdue University has just released uh, and has a, uh, another fund that they've made more widely available that we'll be applying for. 
Uh, we're looking at an SBIR grant right now, uh, or an STTR to, uh, to access that kind of non-dilutive funding. At the same time, we've already had introductions to significant venture firms, and we're in conversations with them now that specialize in agriculture. This is a unique environment when you think about who we serve and what we serve. I was reading the, uh, the masthead for one of them, and it talked about that agriculture feeds and clothes most people in the world. The growing of cotton, the creation of food products, and to be part of that and have people that understand it, understand the distribution channels, uh, help us with partnerships to, you know, we're going to have to recruit the, the, the farmers to allow us to enter into contracts to access the stover. So it's a lot of working parts, but we've got a number of uh, parties that are very interested and a couple of whom uh, have shown an interest in even leading a deal for us. And as you know, that's one of the toughest things to do is to secure your lead on any round of funding. Uh, and these funds are large enough that they could do follow-on rounds. So, you know, you learn those hard lessons from your earlier ventures about uh, how and where and when you source funds, and you look for the value add that they can all bring, all those investors. And we're talking, to, I, I'm very confident we're talking to the right people right now. Well, that's terrific, uh, Dave. And look, um, I'd love to uh, catch up with you in a few months down the line, a year, see how things are going along. But I think uh, uh, some of the lessons that you've learned from your previous successful ventures are coming you know, full circle and converging here. And this is a great story to watch, FiberX. Well, thank you. It is a uh, it is a fabulous opportunity. It's an extraordinarily large opportunity. It's good for the planet. It's good for the local economies across the state of Indiana as we build multiple plants. Um, and it's good for the people that will work there because we will pay them a good and fair wage to do their jobs. And with the help of resources, the educational resources in the state, we're going to use them to help train people to enter our new industry. And I feel really excited about that. So thank you for uh, the conversation today. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a terrific, uh, terrific time talking to you. Same here. Thank you, Andrew If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.